Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Chris Terracone. Season 8 of Jury Duty explores the trial of Alex Murdoch, a member of one of the most powerful families in South Carolina who is accused of murdering his son Paul and his wife Maggie with the purpose of covering up a multitude of alleged crimes including fraud and homicide. In our last episode, we began our look at the defense's cross-examination of firearms expert Paul Greer. In this installment, we continue that review. That's all coming up right after the break. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It is the afternoon of February 3rd, 2023, day 8 of the trial of Alex Murdoch. As we concluded our last episode, SLED firearms and toolmark expert Paul Greer took great pains to emphasize that there were a number of spent shell casings that he can aver were cycled through weapons seized at the property. However, he emphatically distinguished his ability to make that assessment from his inability to determine whether those same shell casings were actually fired by those same weapons. Alex Murdoch's defense attorney Griffin suggested with his follow-up questions that such a distinction is nonsensical. As we begin today, Jim Griffin moves on to ask Paul Greer about other firearms evidence that the witness was previously shown by prosecutor David Fernandez. Now let's move on to the um, shotgun. And you were, you were shown a lot of um, items that were taken, un- unfired, Shot shells, and this is 12 gauge. I'm going to show you exhibit 143, 144, 145, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, all the way to 15. I'm, I'm not going to ask you to take these out, but, but I want you to uh, take a look at all those and tell me when those were seized or taken in the evidence in this case. Um, I do see a date on the packaging. Some of these packages are ripped right through it. Um, that states 9-13-21. And so you, you understand that is June, July, July, three months after these murders, correct? Yes, sir, that uh, September 13th would be several months after the murders, yes, sir. And that those were seized at different places around the property? Uh, yes, sir, according to uh, the information here, um, it appears they were from, from different locations um, that and where they were collected from, yes, sir. I guess you don't know whether property of Moselle was open to Alec Murdoch from June till September, as far as you know, right? I have no knowledge of, of that, no, sir. And if he had the mind to, he could go out and remove every every shotgun shell on the whole property, right? I have no knowledge of how the, uh, the scene was maintained. Well, it would appear that no one removed any shotgun shells since you have them there in your lap, right? Um, it, it does appear that these were collected... Um, from these areas listed on the package on September 13th, I assume a September 13th as it's dated um, and labeled by the, uh, the person who collected these. Griffin then shows a few documents to Prosecutor David Fernandez before handing them to Paul Greer. 
Okay. Let me show you what I marked as Exhibit 63 and 64. Yes, sir, I do recognize um, Defendant's Exhibit 63 um, appears to be a copy of uh, an Item 10 worksheet for the fire shot shell. And Defendant's Exhibit 64 um, appears to be a copy of my worksheet for sled item 14, which were uh, 24 birdshot pellets. And, and just, uh, Doug, if you pull up 63, which is page 51 of the report, and Agent Greer, will you tell the jury what this is? Yes, this is just a copy of one of our standard worksheets that we use to document evidence in the laboratory. Um, so this is an ammunition and cartridge case worksheet, which is why I utilized it when I was um, documenting the item 10 uh, fired shot shell. And this contains my notes that I took on that, that item. Okay, and, and just so that we're clear, are we talking about Exhibit 33? This is the black colored shot shell that was found in the feed room Paul Murdoch was murdered? Uh, yes, sir, that is correct. Um, State Exhibit 33 is uh, the item we're discussing. And and you you have a name under notes. It says on shot shell, it says, quote, dry lock, three inch, two. You see that? Yes, sir, I do. You see that done? And again, um, the exhibit there, and that's what you're talking about, right? Yes, sir, that's correct. And uh, number two is the size of the pellet? Uh, yes, sir. That would uh, refer to the size of the, the pellets or birdshot that was that we would believe to have been loaded into that cartridge or that shot shell, excuse me. Okay. And then um, if you'll go to Exhibit 64, page 55, Doug, and it's 55 in, in your report, and are these the uh, pellets that were provided to you to an, analyze the number two size pellets? Uh, yes, sir. Sled item 14, I determined to be... 24 birdshot pellets, and those were listed as um, being from dog food storage room. Okay. And, and if you look at under the caliber, it says number two, and it says steel. These were steel pellets, were they not? Uh, based on my uh, examination and based on uh, my observation, um, yes, sir, they were magnetic. Um, so that would, uh, that would provide that they had some steel in them, yes, sir. Birdshot can either be steel or lead, I suspect. Maybe there's a third kind. Um, there, there can be multiple different metals used in, in making pellets. Lead is, is one, steel is one. There's, there are also other metals that can be used um, in making pellets, yes, sir. Have you analyzed any of the um, Winchester dry locks that were seized in September of 2021 to see whether they're steel or lead? No, sir, I have not um, analyzed the, their contents. So help me out here. You say there's five pellets weighed 3.4 grams. And then 18 pellets only weighed 3.6 grams. How, how does that work? I weighed each of those pellets individually. And again, we're weighing in grains. And um, when I weighed those on our scale, um, that is what I documented. Five of them weighed 3.4, and that should be um, a piece. 18 of them each weighed 3.6 grains, and one pellet weighed 3.8 grains. Okay. So the, the total of them all together was um, approximately 86.4 grains. Great. Thank you for explaining that. You also weighed the grains of 300 blackout projectiles? Uh, yes, sir, I did. I believe you said 147 grains? Uh, yes, sir. When I weighed sled item 8, which was one fired bullet, um, it was approximately 147.4 grains. And are you familiar with how 300 blackout Ammunition is sold, what weight classes there are? I don't know all of the, the weight, different weights that, that are within that caliber, no, sir. Do you know there's like a subsonic and then supersonic? Again, I don't know everything about that caliber. There are various weights that bullets are sold in for each caliber, um, so I would not be surprised at other grain weights, but I don't know all of them off the top of my head today.
But as far as you know, the only weight you could ever get is 147 grams. When I weighed these items, item 8 and item 12, um, they weighed approximately 147. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. As defense attorney Jim Griffin asks Paul Greer his next series of questions, he picks up an evidence box containing one of the firearms off the floor and holds it before the witness. Unlike the prosecutor, Jim Griffin never removes the firearm from the box. You mentioned in your testimony that item 32, which is exhibit 91, had a Winchester and a Federal 12-gauge shotgun shells in here. Do you remember that? Uh, yes, sir. They did have um, two unfired 12-gauge shot shells submitted with it. That's correct. But you did more than that when you justified shortly ago. You said one was a Winchester and one was a Federal, I believe. Yes, sir. One is a Federal uh, premium heavyweight TSS, and one is a 12-gauge uh, Winchester Longbeard XR, I believe. Oh, the Winchester is not a dry lock, correct? Um, no, sir. The, the markings on, on that shell said a long beard XR. Winchester found murder scene. He's a dry lock, correct? The item, the 10 shot shell, which was recovered from Margaret 10, which I do believe, my understanding is around the, the body of Margaret Murdoch, was a Winchester 12 gauge shell, um, and it says dry lock on it. Yes, sir. All right. Thank Jim Griffin places the firearm box back down on the floor in front of the jury. And then item 22, which is the gun that Alec Murdoch, Murdoch came down, was holding or was leaning up against his Suburban when Deputy Daniel Green arrived. That was, do you understand, loaded with a 12-gauge and a 16-gauge shell, correct? When I received it, um, it was unloaded, um, but I did receive a 12-gauge shell and a 16-gauge shell. That's correct. If you fire a 16-gauge shell and a 12-gauge shotgun, what's likely to happen? Um, that's something that I have not uh, done, um, so I'm unable to answer that question. Is it dangerous to do such a thing? As a firearms examiner, I would recommend shooting the ammo that your firearm is chambered for. Um, I can't predict what would happen if you shot that shot shell or attempted to. Griffin pivots back to asking Agent Greer about his process for reviewing firearms evidence. You spoke of this uh, review process at SLED with regard to, to your tool mark analysis, and, and you said you, you do your analysis, you look at things under a microscope, and you type up a report? Uh, yes, sir. I look at um, the evidence, um, reach a conclusion, and, and write or type those conclusions. Yes, sir. And then a reviewer, someone, um, and in this case, what was the name? Initial CW? Um, the reviewer was uh, Chad Smith, another examiner within our department. Is he uh, on the same level with you at SLED? Um, he is also um, an examiner. Um, I don't know his classification, but he has been employed in the department um, longer than I have uh, completing firearms examination. 
Okay. And and then he he looks at it, but does he prepare an independent report and then flips the two over and see if they match, or does he just take a look at it, come up with his thoughts, and then look at your document to see if he agrees with it? Um, he does not prepare an independent report. Um, no, he does look at the evidence and arrive at those conclusions, um, and, and he would read my, my results. If he agrees with them, um, then he will sign off on this conclusion. If he disagrees with them, um, then there's also a, a procedure for that to, to happen. Griffin then digs deeper into Agent Greer's investigative process by asking about his method for identifying and matching firearms and toolmark evidence. And you mentioned that in order to make an identification or a match, or do you have to have a certain number of similar or is it similar or identical characteristics? Um, in order to make an identification, we want to see uh, sufficient agreement between the, the individual characteristics. Um, there's not a certain number um, that I use as we use a, a, a series, or excuse me, a method called pattern matching. And we're looking at, under the microscope, all these tiny striations and impressions and looking at the surface contours of those two tool marks with each other. And we're looking at those individual peaks and ridges and comparing those under high magnification in order to, to make an identification. And based on that, um, through our training and, and experience of doing this job, we look at thousands of, of comparisons, and excuse me, conduct thousands of comparisons. Um, during that time, we we look at things that match each other that we know um, have been fired from the same gun or made by the same tool, and we look at things that have been fired by separate guns and see if there's any agreement or disagreement. And we look at thousands of these uh, cartridge cases and bullets and tool marks in order to, uh, to learn what that sufficient agreement um, is to make our identification. Okay, and you, you, you gave this jury an analogy like a ladder and that you have to get up so many steps as you reach first step, I guess, would be rifle or shotgun, right? And then second step would be caliber of rifle, if we're talking about a rifle, and then you keep going up the ladder. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. We're going to look at those class characteristics. So we're going to determine if, you know, one, if they're the same caliber, um, do they share the same rifling specifications if they're a fired bullet? Um, if they are, then we can compare those. If, for instance, if a bullet has five lands and groove, and it's going to the right, and we compare that to another bullet that has six lands and grooves and it's uh, going to the left, then we know those did not come out the same barrel, so there's no need to do a, a, any type of comparison there. Um, however, if we look at two that have those same uh, lands and grooves, those five lands and grooves, and they're all going to the right, they're the same caliber, then, then we'll go up that ladder, if you will, and compare those um, individual characteristics to see um, if they were fired by the same firearm or not. Tell the jury how many steps of that ladder you have to go up before you can make an identification. As far as making an identification, um, it's based on the marks that what we see um, under the microscope. Um, when we're looking at all of these marks, we want to see that sufficient agreement. Again, we want to see enough agreement so that what is there is better than anything, any agreement that we've seen in tool marks that have been created by different tools. That's learned on the job, doing this, um, doing practicals that I did in training, looking at thousands of comparisons of things that I've test fired um, that I know were fired from the same gun, looking at things that I've test fired from different guns and looking at that. Um, it's also um, done through studies that I participated in training. I'm looking at things that, that help us know what that sufficient agreement is within all of those features and looking at the totality of those markings. 
So we're not going to base our opinion just on one little mark. We're going to look at the entire surface area of that bullet, the entire surface area of that cartridge case, in order to, to make our conclusion. Um, we're, not, we're not looking at one little mark and making an identification. Um, so we have to think of the totality of all the markings that we see under the microscope. So the short answer to my question, there is no set number of steps on the ladder you have to reach before you can make your decision. Um, we use a, a pattern, excuse me, a method of pattern matching again, and that's how we do it. And that's a widely accepted uh, method throughout all firearms examiners um, in the United States and the world, really. Um, that's, that's what we've been using for years to complete um, firearms identification, and, and that's what's been widely accepted, looking at these patterns and, and comparing them in order to, to make our identification and reach our conclusion. Defense Attorney Griffin next implies that the analytical processes of firearms and toolmark experts, such as those employed by Agent Greer, have been criticized as lacking the objective analytical rigor to qualify as scientific methods. Well, now, you say it's been widely accepted, but isn't it true that your field of expertise has come under criticism by the scientific community? There has been criticism, but again, there's been uh, research completed um, to, to, to support firearms identification, if you will. Well, I mean, the National Academy of Scientists issued a report and was pretty critical of the objectivity of your work, that it is more subjective because you don't have a set number of ladders, rings on a ladder you got to reach. It's, it's based upon your experience, your training, and your opinion. But there's no objective criteria by which to measure whether something matches or not. And that, you're aware of that criticism by the National Academy of Scientists, right? I'm aware of, of some of the criticism, yes, sir. Um, however, the process of making the identification is subjective in nature, but it's based on some objective data that we're looking at. Um, so it, there's, again, lots of information that we're looking at, those, the contours of those tool marks, the individual peaks and ridges of those tool marks, and looking at it, it's not, it's not just looking to see that, is this a match and it looks good. We're really uh, looking in, under high magnification at all of these features to see um, what agreement or disagreement that, that we can uh, determine. And again, that's based on some objectivity, you know, of how we arrived to, to that situation. You agree that, that your chosen field is part art as much as science, right? Our field is an applied science, um, really. We do use um, lighting and angles to look at these features under the microscope, and it's important to know how to move those items around and move those lighting and that, those different stages on our microscope in order to see some of these markings. I mean, it can be difficult to do, and, and there is a, a special technique that you, know, you have to learn in looking at this and doing it and using that microscope to, to really become familiar and, and efficient. Did you agree with me previously in this courtroom under oath that this profession you're in is part art? There, there is some art to it and that's just the lighting thing. For example, you know, we, we have to look at that and we have to use that oblique lighting in order to make some of those striations show up. Um, again, these are tiny little marks that we're looking at that we're looking at under magnification. But the field itself is, is not art. It's an applied science. We're using um, scientific processes to, to reach these inclusions with years of research to, to support it. As he asks his next questions, Jim Griffin points to the evidence boxes containing firearms which still lie on the floor in front of the jury. He first examined item 22 back in June of 2021, correct? Which is yes. Which is the rifle, the shotgun that Alec Murdoch had that was taken by Deputy Green, right? 
Uh, yes, sir. Item 22 was a Benelli model Super Black Eagle, and I, I did receive that item in June. Yes, sir. When did you receive the 300 Blackout? I received item 33, which was um, inside sled container K on June 10th. And, and when did you uh, issue your preliminary opinions to on item 33 and item 22 to, to your agency, SLEP? I released um, some results to to our agents and investigators on June 10th, June 10th, yes sir. Are you aware after June 10th that sled dive teams have been going out Collin County, diving the waters, trying to find murder wells? Um, I'm not aware of what all our dive teams were doing. No, sir. You did report to the folks at SLED who rely upon your analysis that, hey, Eureka, we got the murder weapons. Um, no, sir, uh, that's not what I reported. And you've never received any projectiles from the shooting range at Moselle to compare. Prosecutor David Fernandez objects on the basis that this question has already been asked and answered. I haven't asked my question yet. Griffin reframes the question. Have you ever received any projectiles from the shooting range at Moselle to compare to the uh, projectile item number eight? Fernandez again objects on the same basis as the prior objection. Judge Clifton Newman allows the witness to answer. Based on my understanding of the scene, I do not believe I received any projectiles from that shooting area, um, but that's based on my understanding of, of where I believe the other projectiles were recovered from. When you got item... 22 of the shotgun. Do you know whether it had been swabbed on the inside of the barrel? I believe it had been processed by other departments. Um, however, I, I do not know what those swabs entail. If, if a shotgun has been recently fired, does it leave evidence in the barrel that soot stuff? Yes, sir. It's possible that we would see um, some type of residue from firing in that barrel. And are, are you aware that Agent Worley lobbed the top before she removed the 16-gauge shell from it? Uh, no, sir. I do not know what Agent Worley did in this investigation. Can you see residue with the naked eye of a shotgun that has just recently been fired? Sometimes, yes, sir. And that is something that we um, also document as part of our examination of the firearm. Um, and when I looked into the, the barrel and looked down the bore of the item 22 shotgun, I do have in my case file circled that I noticed some fouling or residue in the barrel. Uh, was it recent fouling or residue, or was it a, just a dirty gun? I do not. I can't date when that fouling was placed there. That was residue. That residue was placed there. No, sir. I can't put a time on. It. What about the 300 blackout? Was it? I think you have a note that's some fouling there. But uh, yes, sir. That's correct. On um, the item 33 rifle, I did note that there was some fouling or residues in that barrel. The, the opinion that you have provided this court as to the shell casings from the murder scene, sled items two through seven, and that your opinion is that they were loaded into and extracted and ejected from the same firearm at some previous time with items 35 through 37, 39, 108, 113, 116, 17, and 122, and those are shell casings that were found around the house and at, at the shooting range. Your opinion that they were that they were loaded into, extracted, and ejected from the same firearm. Are you, do you hold that opinion with 100% certainty? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, that is my opinion. Um, that is the conclusion that I reached. Did you ever tell Agent Owen that you could not forensically state with 100% certainty? Uh, no, sir. When I arrived at that conclusion, that was my conclusion. Um, and it was also agreed upon by the um, reviewing examiner. So if there's a note in Agent Owen's report that you couldn't reach it with 100% certainty, then someone has made a mistake? 
Um, I don't know uh, the contents of Agent Owen's report. And with the end of Defense Attorney Jim Griffin's cross-examination of Agent Greer, we bring to a close this episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Alex Murdoch. Please join us on our next installment as we conclude our review of the testimony of Paul Greer and begin our look at day nine of the trial with the in-camera testimony of Mark Tinsley, the lawyer who represented the family of Mallory Beach in the suit against the Murdoch family for the death of Ms. Beach in a boating accident caused by Paul Murdoch. Also, check out the Crime Story podcast, Night Raid, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie and Tholis. It was co-produced, written, and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Trial audio is courtesy of Law & Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty.